going to begin by reading to you from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. I appreciate Brother Luke's prayer and something he said jumped out at me because of what's been on my mind. He said, we're one body worshiping one God. This passage that I'm about to read speaks about seven facets of the oneness that the people of God have together. And today, what I'd like to focus on is one of those, which is the one baptism. But let me begin by reading this short passage. This is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. I remember back to a time when I was was growing up, my family lived right next to a farm, a huge farm. And uh, this farm grew hay and various vegetables and different things. And I remember a time when I was working, helping the farmer to gather up the hay. And that kind of job uh, is very hot, sweaty, dirty kind of job, hard work. And so he's riding along with the wagon and me and a friend of mine are picking up the bales of hay and putting them onto the wagon and doing it in the heat of the sun. The sun's beating down on us. Middle of summer, we're hot. We're throwing the hay up. The hay gets in your clothes. It gets all over you. You feel dirty, dusty, dry, hot, and tired by the end of it. And I imagine that maybe all of you, in one form or another, have felt that way at some point in your life or another, where you felt tired and dry and hot and... And if you feel that way, there is few things that feel better at that time than a nice, cool, refreshing body of water to jump into. We had a river right near our house, but it could be a lake or a swimming pool or a river when you're hot and you're dry. Jumping into that nice, cool, refreshing water is so nourishing and so refreshing, and it's just what you need at that time. And uh, so I tell that story because I think it gives us a little bit of a parallel what that does for your body when your body's hot and you feel in need of that refreshment is kind of like what happens to your soul in baptism when you need that refreshment for your soul. When you need not your body to be washed, but you need your conscience to be cleansed. When you need that refreshment that comes from God to your soul and your conscience. And so I'd like to look at baptism today. And baptism, trying to define what it is, what it means, is a very multifaceted thing. Because baptism takes on different aspects of meaning in the scriptures. It's very deep and very rich and very profound. And I hope what we can do in coming to this today is that it can bring forward to your mind the significance and the meaning of it. 
And uh, for those that, ha- that are baptized and can look back to a time in your past, that it can bring that experience forward to you into the present and you can uh, be reminded of the great significance and the meaning of it. And those that, if there's anyone here that hasn't, that you would see set before you from God's word the uh, beauty and the significance and the meaning of it. Um, when we first see in the New Testament baptism presented, we see it in the form of one prophet by the name of John, uh, who came to be known as John the Baptist because he came and it says that he came baptizing. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, which, of course, was the river that ran right through the land of Israel. And that is itself significant because that brings us to the location. But it was also the Jordan River that the people of Israel crossed over to enter into the promised land. So it had a significance of that as well. Of course, the idea of baptism itself, the idea of a ceremonial washing was not new with John the Baptist, but it's something that goes back into the Old Testament. And there's even examples that can be um, analogies or pictures to us of baptism that came later. I think of a man uh, named Naaman, who was a Gentile, who came into the land of Israel seeking a prophet so that he could be healed from his leprosy. And he's told to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And when he finally does... Uh, he comes forward clean of his leprosy. And that's just a foreshadowing or or a a symbol of what God does in baptism. But they also had practices where they baptize, and it uses the same word to describe it. They baptize the dishes that they used in in the temple service. They'd dip them in the water and they'd wash them. And so this, in a ceremonial fashion, so that they would... Uh, signify by that that they were clean and that they were being dedicated and set apart for a sacred purpose. And remember back as Ephesians began, I remember speaking to you about this very thing where it says to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, that to be part of that body of Christ is to be a saint, to be set apart consecrated for a sacred purpose and a sacred calling. And that is who this is written to people, regular people like you and me, normal people, but set apart for a sacred and holy calling, just like the dishes that they used in the service in the temple were like other dishes in their material makeup, but they were sanctified and set apart for a sacred calling. And we have that sacred calling and baptism is part of that. Well, it says when people came out to him, when they came out to him, uh, it says then went out to him all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And so we see the association of the confession of sin and repentance with baptism. Because that ceremonial washing, that, that signification of baptism being a cleansing, was not about cleansing the flesh, but about cleansing man from sin. It was signifying to us the cleansing of sin that would come about by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And in the act of of being baptism and receiving baptism, God brings that reality to brings that reality present to the conscience of the person that is being baptized so that it is a powerful and meaningful and real experience. It also involves a, in addition to confession of sin and repentance, it's also a profession of faith. It's also a, a, a profession of belief in something or to think about it in another way, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing less than a loyalty oath to Jesus Christ. It is a proclamation publicly that, that I am dedicated and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ for all to see. And so the great significance of it comes in those different aspects. And, and so, for example, when we see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he associates being baptized with repentance. That is a turning away from the old life and rising again to new life. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, And said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now here's a setting in which the people hearing the preaching of Peter's message, God pricked them in their heart so that they saw in their conscience their guiltiness before God and their culpability for the worst sin of all, for the participating in the very death, the execution of Jesus, that they saw that they were part of that, that they contributed to that, that they were guilty of that very thing, that they they did it willingly. And with cruelty in their hearts, they participated in or accommodated or acquiesced to the crucifixion of the very son of God himself. And they were their hearts were struck with this. And they felt their guilt upon them. And they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter's response, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you. And to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as our Lord, the Lord, our God shall call. And and in that one passage, in that brief and concise statement that Peter makes there, we see all those different facets coming together in baptism. We see repentance and confession of sin. Their sin is now exposed and they're they're confessing it before. And then they're and, and Peter is exhorting them to repent. To put aside their sin and turn from it. He's calling them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see that there is a, an object to their faith in what they're doing. Now, keep in mind that there were other different kinds of ceremonial washings and different things. So this is, this is not just any baptism. This is not just any dipping in water. This is in the name of Jesus Christ. This is with faith in him and an acknowledgement of his lordship over their lives. And it's said to be done for the remission of sins in light of the forgiveness of God's uh, God's forgiveness of their sins. 
And he says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there's another aspect because uh, John would say that uh, he baptized with water, but one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so with the coming of Christ, we see that the, the Spirit of God is joined in that very thing. And so that, that baptism isn't just about being in water, but it is also being in the Holy Spirit. It is also the presence of God coming and being present with his people. And so Peter declares that. Now, I'd like to read to you another passage. This is from Ezekiel 47. And it's, a, as many things in Ezekiel, a very interesting, curious kind of passage. Because Ezekiel is given a vision of the restoration of God's kingdom on the earth and his people. And he's given this glorious vision in terms of images that were uh, familiar and known to the people like the temple and the land of Israel. But is, and, and Ezekiel is given a vision of a rebuilt and an expanded temple. And then among the other things that he's given this vision of is described here in Ezekiel 47. And that's something that is going out from the temple into the land of Israel. And it's a picture of a river. It's a picture of water flowing out. And you may, be, you may have read in Revelation, the end of Revelation, how... In the city of God, there's a river of life flowing. And this is very similar here in Ezekiel 47. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house, At the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward, and behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters and the waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass over for the waters were risen waters to swim in a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live, and there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live, whither the river come. Whither the river, whither the river cometh. So here's this vision that Ezekiel gets. He's brought out to the temple and he sees this new reconstructed majestic temple 
And he's taken around this temple. And as he comes to the east side of the temple at the gate, there's almost sounding like a trickle of water coming out from that gate. And the water is coming out. And then the angel that's delivering him this message has him walk a thousand cubits out from there. And as he walks a thousand cubits, the level of the water is starting to rise. Now it's up to his ankles. And so he has him walk another thousand cubits. And now it's up to his knees. Has him walk another thousand cubits. And now it's up towards the top of his legs. And then by the time he's walked another thousand, now it's this flowing river that he cannot cross over if he wanted to. And this flowing river is going out. And as the river goes out, it's spreading out and it's entering into the seas and into the lands. And fruitful trees are being uh, coming up from the shores of it. And it's going out into the various seas, even to the Dead Sea, which you may have heard of the Dead Sea filled with salt. Uh, Things can't live in there very well because of so much salt. But as the waters go out, they they heal the waters that are corrupted so that now in those waters, a great multitude of fish is able to come out and live. What what this signifies, what this signifies is that with the coming of Christ into the world, the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled that said, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it signifies to us the healing power of the gospel and of God's word as it goes out into the world and it brings that healing message with it. The message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And as that message comes out into the world, it makes disciples of all nations. And I think about the a relationship there because Jesus said of his disciples who were fishermen, interestingly, he said, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we see that that this uh, the word of God goes out and it has a power to heal and to transform and united right with that is the uh, ordinance, this ceremony of baptism. Because it goes right hand in hand with the word of God. In fact, the authority to baptize and the purpose of baptizing was given by Christ along with his commandment for them to go and to preach the word. Because at the end of his ministry, before he ascended up to heaven, he called his disciples together to him. And he said, all power has been given me in heaven and earth. He said, all authority has been given to me. He, he had been, uh, he, he was going to be elevated to the throne at the right hand of the father and have authority to execute his purpose as king of kings and Lord of lords over this whole earth. And the way that he was going to administer that kingdom was by sending his disciples out. And he says to teach all nations. The way that he was going to exercise his authority in his kingdom was by teaching the truth throughout all nations and sending his disciples to do it. He says, teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. And so you see how this king of kings and lord of lords, his kingdom is distinct and different from the kingdoms of this world in that the way that he rules is by the word of truth spoken. 
And then as his followers and his disciples come and submit themselves willingly to that word of truth, they obey the commandments that he has given. And so he teaches his disciples, teach them, baptize them, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Just as in this vision, the living waters of life, the healing waters flowed out from under the gate of the temple. We can think also of Christ, how he described himself as the temple. He described his body as the temple for 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 he says, uh, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. He also described himself as the door. He was he's the door. And so we see it flowing out of the gate of the temple. We see that Christ is the source of those healing waters and they flow forth from him out into all the world, wherever they go and they bring about healing and transformation. And we see the power of God at work in this, that dry, fruitless, lifeless land now is transformed so that it brings forth trees that are fruitful and nourished and nourishing and and flourishing with life. And so it is as the power of God's word and God's spirit comes into the lives of people who apart from it are dry and lifeless and fruitless and empty. And when his word and his spirit comes Into our lives, he's able to take that dry, lifeless soil and transform it and heal it and bring about life so that it can bear much fruit for his praise. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in him, abiding in him, we have the source of life and nourishment that we need. We also see that in baptism, as I uh, introduce this, we see the unity of the church shown, demonstrated to us in baptism. Baptism is, among other things, it is the initiation into the church. Baptism performs uh, several very real and powerful functions. And one of those functions is, is that it initiates someone into the body of Christ into the church through that, through that ordinance. And so when you, when, when Paul writes to the Ephesians and he's writing to this body of people and he's exhorting them, he's, he exhorts them endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor, strive, put forth great effort and intention. Exert your mental faculties and your energy towards this goal. That is that you would strive to the unity of the church. And you strive to the unity of the church based on the reality that that unity is accomplished in Jesus Christ by what is shared and freely received of us by grace. One hope of our calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. We have all been made to drink of one spirit. And right in there, one of those things is one baptism. That everyone in that body, everyone in that church has passed through the waters together. Passed through those same waters to come out on the other side, united together as one people. 
There are several uh, analogies to this throughout the Bible. One of them goes way back to the time of Noah and the ark, which is is somewhere uh, described to us as a picture of baptism. In the ark, the world was overflowed by water, and it says that eight souls, Noah, his family, they were saved through water in the ark. And they passed through that water together in that ark. And they passed through the water, and as the water uh, covered the earth and baptized the, immersed the earth, and, and brought about uh, death, which we'll see also is, is, is signified in baptism, it brought about a death... But that death was also newness of life for them because when they came out on the other side of that baptism, they emerged from the ark and they emerged from the ark into a new world, into a transformed world that they had been given by God. It says that the world that then was perished being overflowed by water. But that old world that was destroyed, God destroyed it in order that he might, through Noah and through his family, make a new world. And they passed through those waters together and they came out on the other side. Another example that's given to us is of the people of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, the people of Israel, before they became a nation, they were a people... Uh, descended from Jacob, from Israel, and from his 12 sons, the, the tribes. And before they rose to power as a nation, when they were but 70, 72 people, they went into Egypt uh, in the midst of a famine, and ultimately that uh, resulted in their captivity in Egypt. They went there for food, but they ended up as slaves in Egypt. And by the time that they came out, they were a great multitude of people because God greatly blessed them while they were there to grow and to become a great people. But they were slaves in Egypt and God purposed to deliver them out of Egypt. But when they came out of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea together by a great miracle of God. That uh, when they came to the border of the Red Sea and Pharaoh was pursuing them, wanting to bring them back into captivity, God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they passed over those waters on dry land. And later in the New Testament, it would say that they were baptized in the sea and in the cloud because God was God's presence was with them through that whole time as he led them by a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So we see that there was both water and the spirit, God's presence and the water that they had to pass through together. And that same waters that was destructive to Pharaoh and the instruments of their captivity was their deliverance from captivity out into ultimately the promised land. And they, as one people, passed through those waters together. There's another similar event that they would later experience after 40 years in the wilderness. They would also pass through the Jordan River into the promised land. And they would pass through as one people and they would come out on the other side as a people formed and ready to inherit the promises that God had made for them. And we can liken those things to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united together and that we have all passed through the waters of baptism. And we come through those waters together 
And we come together, and after passing through those waters, we come to feast at the table of the Lord. And so uh, when we come to the feast, when we come to the Lord's table, we come clean. Just like uh, if you were out uh, dusty and dry and working all day out in the fields, uh, lifting hay and you had the itchy, dirty hay all over your body, in your clothes, you would want to wash and be clean before you come to the feast. And so it is that we, when we come to the Lord's table, we come cleansed and washed. And that is signified to us through baptism so that all of the disciples are baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and another important facet of this, I said that there is a, a signification of death in baptism, which uh, perhaps we wouldn't uh, of ourselves expect in seeing it. But uh, when you stop and you consider the symbolism of the baptism, it begins to become clear that there is this picture of death as well. And this becomes evident in things like Romans chapter six. Because when we understand the destitution of our spiritual condition, when we understand the need of cleansing that we have, we come to understand that we need not just any ordinary washing, not just a little bit of cleansing, but in fact, we need an entirely new life to us. We need we we our, our state is dead in trespasses and sins. We need to rise to newness of life. And so the ceremony that God has given to signify this work signifies a death and a resurrection. And that death and resurrection is a death and resurrection with Christ. So in Romans chapter six, Paul writes this after for five chapters laying out the foundation of salvation by grace through faith, laying out the foundation about how we are justified, not by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, how we are saved by uh, what Jesus Christ has done. And so he says, uh, 21 of the previous, that has sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then uh, a question or perhaps an objection or a doubt is raised that often gets raised when people are confronted with the doctrine that salvation is by grace and entirely by grace. We might say, though this is not right thinking or a proper way of thinking, we might say, well, if if God's glory and his grace are magnified and displayed by forgiving sinners of their sins, then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If God is glorified and magnified by forgiving my sin, then uh, one might ask, why don't I continue to sin so that God's grace might continue to be magnified and abound in it? But that, of course, is foolishness and missing so much of what is presented to us. And that's what Paul addresses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Notice that, that there is in baptism, there is an identification with Christ, but not just with Christ generally, but with Christ and particularly with his death. That as he died on the cross, as he was immersed in death on the cross, we in baptism are buried with him, baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Those that have been baptized in Jesus Christ, they come forth and, that, and, and are to walk in the newness of life. They have, baptism signifies for us that dying to the old life, the old way, and rising to newness of life. We are no longer slaves to our sin, but we are now, we are now servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, in, and in identifying with Jesus Christ, we see that we are crucified with him, that our old man, our old life is put to death with him on the cross. And we are freed to now walk in the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he says we should walk. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of of his resurrection. And how do we do that? How, how do we walk in the newness of life? Well, Jesus said it this way to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We see that baptism is the path of discipleship. A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only a proper candidate for baptism and all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are called to be baptized. And in baptism is signified a reality of us that we are also called to live out every day. And that is that we die to ourselves and we live to Christ. We die to our own desires that we might live out the will of God in our lives Deny himself. He says, take up his cross, an instrument of death and suffering. Take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Follow Christ. That's what it is to live as a disciple of Christ, to follow him. To acknowledge in that and and in baptism, there is a, as I said, a loyalty oath to Christ. There is an acknowledgement of his absolute lordship over our lives. 
That means that our whole paradigm for how we live and how we interact in this world is fundamentally different from the people of this world. Because we are not living for ourselves and our own desires. It's no longer asking the question, what do I want to get out of life? How would I like to live my life? What is fulfilling for me? What makes me happy? What, but what does my Lord desire of me? What does my Lord require of me? What would he have me to do? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, see, he that would try to save his own life... And I think that means something like, that means to to try to find our own fulfillment in our own desires and our own ways, satisfy our own ways and lusts. He that would save his life shall lose it. But he that would lose his life for my sake. See, it's, it's scary to give up our lives. It's scary to let go. And baptism, although baptism requires a willing choice on the part of the person being baptized because they willingly go to that baptism, yet it is a receiving, it is a passive receiving of something. You have no strength. Even in the way the ordinance is performed, the person being baptized has no strength in it. They're giving up, they're surrendering to it. And they are being, that's why it's, that's why it's called being baptized. It's a, even passive language in it. Because it's not something you can do to yourself or for yourself is something that God must do to you. And the ordinance signifies even that very thing is the person surrenders themselves. They let themselves go loose and allow themselves to be plunged down into the water and raised back out, not of their own strength, but by the strength of another. And so we see in that something that we are called to live out daily in our service to God. That's that we give up the reliance on our own strength or the uh, seeking of the empowerment of our own will. And we submit ourselves to the will of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, what we gain, what we gain, even though that's scary, it's scary to lose control. It's scary to give up the control over our own lives. But It is only in that that we gain so much more. We gain the life of Christ. He says, he that uh, will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And I would add also that when you look at how this very similar uh, statement that Jesus makes is recorded in Luke. That is almost exactly the same language. He says, uh, if any man uh, will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. But there's a word added in Luke. He says, daily, daily, lay down his life daily. And so we see that this is something that is ongoing. Uh, In baptism, it also signifies that submission to authority. There is an authority structure at work in baptism. We see this in a couple different ways. One is when Jesus wanted to expose the hypocrisy of of his enemies, he asked them about the authority that John had to baptism. He says, where's the baptism of John from? Is it from heaven or from men? In other words, did John decide one day to go out and start baptizing people of his own? If he did, then there was no requirement for anybody to submit to it. That was of man. Is it from man or from heaven? That is from God. 
If it's from God, then why didn't they obey him? And if it's from man, then why, why don't they come out and say it? And so we see that there's an authority structure in baptism. Also, we see it in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John at first uh, is resistant to it. He's willing to do it, but he says, he says, I should be baptized of you. See, John recognized that there was a certain submission that took place in baptism. And so where does that authority come from? It doesn't come from the man doing the baptism. It comes from God. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples. Why did Peter have the authority to baptize? Not because he was Peter, not because of anything in Peter, but because he was charged with that by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he baptized, he baptized on his behalf. And so we see in baptism, there is a submission to, yes, to the authority of the church, but as in it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is ultimately to the authority of Christ that takes place in that. Now, I also want us to see that baptism is a present reality. If you were to think about your baptism, you might think about it as a past event because in a sense it is. It is an event that you can look back on. You can look at a time and you might say, I was baptized. I was baptized on such and such a date at such and such a time. But I also want you to think about it as a present reality so that you can also correctly say, I am baptized. Consider the analogy of washing again. Uh, If you were to now, after being cleansed and clean, you come to the table and you come to sit around the table, you could say, I washed, I was washed. But you can also say, I am washed. I am clean. Baptism signifies a once-for-all cleansing. Now, the thing that uh, performs that cleansing is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is signified to us through the waters of baptism, that baptism is a once-and-for-all cleaning. That is, that you are called to continually confess your sins and repent every day. And you can look back to the event of your baptism as a sign that God has given you a sign of his cleansing power in your life that you live out every day as you daily lay down your life in service of him, as you continually confess your sins and repent, as it says in first John chapter one, when he writes, uh, if we say that we have no sin. He says, if we say that we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we are to once for all confess our sins, but also daily and continually strive against sin, confess our sins and repent and turn from it towards God. We are also to strive toward unity, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4. That baptism is a constant reminder of the unity that we have as the people of God with one another. 
Just like those Israelites, when they're in the wilderness, they could look back and see how God had brought them through an experience together. They had passed through the sea together and experienced the mighty power of God at work in their lives to deliver them from death and bring them into freedom. And they had that and they were unified in that truth. And so as we strive to build up one another, to build up the church, strive toward the unity, we do so on the basis of what God has done commonly to us, to one another. As Paul exhorts the Ephesians to unity, he does so on the basis of what they are in Jesus Christ and what God has done and what they share in their common faith, their common Lord, their common God, their common Father their common body, the spirit that they share, and their one baptism. And lastly, as we consider our baptism, we consider that in that baptism, we are marked out to all the world, to ourselves, but also publicly to the world as a whole. We are marked out as the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a mark on us that identifies us as the people of God. And that is not something to take lightly. It is a glorious calling that we have to be marked out as the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as this chapter began, we see, I beseech you, he says, that you walk worthy of the calling of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Walk worthy of the vocation because that is a glorious calling. If you have been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are marked out from the world as a disciple and a follower of Lord Jesus of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are called to strive every day to live up to that calling by the power of Christ at work in us. And in that, may we daily experience that dying to self and living to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your attention this morning.